If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 16. Psalm 16. We're going to finish a series today, a little short series that started when I got back from my sabbatical on the nearness of God, drawing near to God, that theme in Scripture. And next week, we will be starting in a book study of 2 Timothy, and I'll give you more on that next week. But now we've been hopping around a little bit and seeing kind of more the the forest rather than the trees of God's Word. And one of the things that we see when we look at the forest is that there's this theme of God not being far from us. Paul says this in his sermon in Acts. He says, God is not far from any one of us. And he's talking to the worst uh, idol worshipers you can imagine, the people that have filled their whole city with these idols and walked away from God and they, they don't know him, but he says you're not far. He's not far from any one of us. And so we looked at the nearness of God and that salvation that any one of us, when we turn to him, we see that he is not far from any one of us. And then we kind of drill down into everyday life. How does it, what does it mean to experience the nearness of God in everyday life? Because he has told us that he is near to us. And last week, we talked about the nearness of God and our pain. How the nearness of God is so important for us to understand suffering. Today, I want to finish by talking about the opposite of that, which is the nearness of God in our joy. And the whole idea of this series is that whatever it is that we're experiencing, if we're just experiencing making coffee in the morning or going to work, or if we're experiencing the hardest thing that we've ever experienced and we're in pain, or if we're experiencing great joy, it doesn't matter what we're experiencing. Each one of those things is an invitation to experience the nearness of God. And so when we come in our joy, that is a way to come back to God's nearness. So let's read Psalm 16 together. A victim of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. If you Google, uh, don't right now, um, but if you Google the happiest place on earth, you get two results, largely speaking, in the, the results that you get. Uh, the happiest place on earth is um, Disney, 
right? Anything related to Disney, that's their slogan. Some of you will recognize that. Uh, the other thing that you'll get is Finland, um, because apparently in sociological studies that they've done, Finland has ranked among the happiest place for people to live in the world. So Disney and Finland. I have no experience with Finland whatsoever. Um, I know nothing about Finland, but I do know something about Disney. And we went uh, to Disney World this summer on my sabbatical. One of the things that we did is go to Orlando. And, um, you know, we, it is, I mean, it's probably, you know, in terms of consumption and, uh, you know, those types of measures, it is a very happy place. If you uh, talk to my kids and you say, what was the highlight of your three months away this summer? They would say it was Disney World, as I know they've told many of you. But I remember when we were at uh, the park, it was the third day we were at uh, the park and we were enjoying our time and uh, a stressful situation, I'll keep it pretty broad here, arose. Um, family situation, extended family situation. Um, I think you guys know what I'm saying. Extended family can be a stressful thing. And so we, we started having to talk about this issue and, and deal with this stressful thing in the midst of being at Disney World. And uh, I remember it got really tense, and so we, it got so tense that we had, to, we had to talk about it. We had to figure out how we're going to respond to this, and Becca and I were trying to work through the best way for us to do that. So we bought the kids ice cream, uh, little Mickey bars, you know, to sit uh, and sit over there. We've we got to deal with this right now. And I remember thinking as we were working through that, I remember saying actually to Becca, I don't want to deal with this while I'm in the, I'm in the Magic Kingdom. As a man in my mid-30s, still kind of wanting that fairy tale to be true, right? I'm at the Magic Kingdom. This is not supposed to be stressful place. We're supposed, this supposed to be the happiest place on earth. And yet, we were experiencing this stress and needed to work through it. Even the happiest place on earth is not sacred from the hardship and pain and tension and things in real life. And I've never been to Finland, but I'm guessing I would get the same experience. That it wouldn't have to be the sacred place where everything was good all the time. Because one little thing, one little situation, one little communication error can, can bring that joy to a halt. And can bring in things that you don't want. And yet, inside of us, each, in each one of us, we want there to be this eternal happiness. We know that we're built for joy. We know that, that what we want is something kind of blissful, and, and yet we don't know how to achieve it. And it seems like every place on earth, even the ones like Disney World that are, that are built for happiness, cannot provide it all the time. But if it wasn't there, why would we think about it? Why would we dwell on it? Why would we expect it? Why would we be disappointed when it isn't there? If we weren't built for some kind of joy, is there a place where the joy and the happiness that our hearts long for is actually full and everlasting? And the song responds with, yes, it is. There is a place. And it's found in verse 11. And it's an incredible statement. And I mean that in both senses of the word incredible. Like it's awesome. But also, I think it's something that we find hard to be credible. We find it hard to believe that this is true or that a person 
who's writing about God could experience this. Verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. The answer that the Bible gives to the longing for joy in its fullest sense is found in the presence of God. It's found in being near to the God who made everything. Drawing nigh means that we draw near not just to what is true, what is right, what is intellectually satisfying, what is whatever, but it's also the place where we are most joyful. Of course, that doesn't change the fact of what all we talked about last week, that the nearness of God is also a place where we experience great pain. But it's also the place where we can experience the greatest joy. I want to talk about how that can be true this morning. How can the presence of God be the fullness of joy? How can we take that incredible statement and make sense of it in a real way? What does the presence of God have that no other place, Finland, Disney World, wherever is your happy place that is not sacred? What does it have that those things lack? And the answer, I think, is threefold. We're going to look at how it addresses the, the main killers of joy. There are things that take away our joy, and the presence of God dispels those things, and therefore it is the, the, the fullest experience of joy. So I want to talk about those three killers of joy. The first one is this, the fear of missing out. The reason why we can't experience fullness of joy sometimes is that we believe that we are missing out on something else that is happening that is better. FOMO, the fear of missing out, it's real. It takes away our joy. Hey, I kind of am happy right now, but I, I wonder if someone else is having a better time than me. And the scripture tells us in Psalm 16 that the presence of God gives us the best things now and the best things in the future. And Christianity is about both of those things. Sometimes people think it's only about the future. It's only about the, the gift that you inherit at the end. But the scriptures tell us over and over again that the joy of the Lord can be experienced right now. And so this is what David says in verse 2. The best things now. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The meaning of that phrase, no good apart from you, it's I have no good in addition to you. There's nothing better out there. I'm putting away the FOMO, right? There's, I have everything in you. You are the sum of good things. All the good things that are out there exist in the category you, oh Lord. That's what he's saying. That incredible statement. What are these kinds of things that we're talking about? Well, he uses some metaphors here to fill in the details. He compares life of God as, as a feast and also as a land inheritance. Look at verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. He's talking about two images there. 
His table spread before him, the cup, the feast, but also the land that surrounds him. And those two things have a, a symbiotic relationship, right? Especially in this time period where uh, they would grow the food. And if it was a rich inheritance, if it was a rich crop, then they would have their table filled. And so he's saying there's a relationship here. Having the best land means you have the best feasting. And so the picture is of a portion, a lot, and a cup, all of which work in both metaphors for the land or for the table. They all have double meanings, meaning the portion of your food could be like the portion of your land, or the, the cup is, the, is what you're drinking, but it's also the means by which you drink it. You hold drink in a cup, but you also refer to it as your cup. And he's basically saying, you have given me good things and the fruit of good things. You have given me both the means of production and the production itself. You have blessed what you have given me. And of course, he's not talking just about these physical things. He's spiritualizing them and saying, it's, it's my life in you. I have no good apart from you. He's not just talking about his dinner table. He's talking about his dinner table as a means to talk about his whole life experience. I have nothing else but these things, and these things are good. You, O oh Lord are my portion and my cup. You are my allotment. The presence of the Lord, ultimately, he's going to say, is the fullness of joy. It's like having these things in abundance. But that's the best for now, but also the best for the future. I have a beautiful inheritance. The joy is great now, but I have something coming in the future that is even greater. And isn't that what happiness is when you think to yourself, what I have now is good and it's only going to get better. Isn't that the feeling of joy? How do we understand this joy when it seems like our experience rubs up against it? What is the secret of contentment? Or of joy. And we see elsewhere in the scripture that when David was saying these things, he was rooting himself in God himself, the great provider. And we see that throughout the scriptures that we see the fuller and fuller story. We find in Jesus Christ the, the fulfillment of these things, that he is everything that we need. And what the Apostle Paul is going to say in the New Testament and other writers are going to say, you already have everything that you need in Christ Jesus. You have enough. Your cup is full. They bring the same metaphors back in. You have a beautiful inheritance. You have the land that was promised to you. And he's going to say all of these things are true in Christ. You aren't behind you have everything now that you need and everything for the future. And so, in theory, FOMO shouldn't exist. The fear of missing out. But it does. One of our conversation partners throughout this series has been the great St. Augustine. And um, one of the things that he's reportedly said is, grant me chastity but not yet. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. Grant me chastity. Grant me purity. But not yet. A phrase that often we assume what he meant is give me you know, a purity, but I can wait a little while for it. Right? 
That's something that, if you're a Christian, you're thinking, okay, that's wrong, right? But then you're also kind of thinking, yeah, but that kind of makes sense, right? I kind of want the best or everything right now, and I want to change later. Now, there is something wrong about that, but let me tell you how sometimes Christians get this, how we try to fix it wrongly. It's a wrong problem that we try to fix wrongly. And what often happens, this was the narrative that I heard most when I was growing up in youth group circles and other things, is not to have that perspective of grant me chastity but not yet, or, or you know, let me have fun now, but later I'll, I'll get better. What I heard most often was this, you shouldn't have that perspective because you might die. Right? You shouldn't have that perspective because what if you die while you're having fun? And then God comes back and then you, you like, you missed out on your chance. Because you don't know if you're going to die or not, you shouldn't live this way. But there is nothing in Psalm 16 that motivates us that way. Now there are other scriptures that talk about taking, you know, use of the moment and living, you know, like, like Christ will come back and those types of things. But that's not the point of Psalm 16. It's not to say that, um, that there's good things around and you should... You shouldn't enjoy them because, you know, later you might die and you might not be able to repent of those things or something like that. What he's saying is this. I have gotten to a place where I don't see those things as good. It's not as though I'm missing out for a while and then I'm getting the good things. I'm seeing through those things and I'm seeing that there's actually something really good. Much better. Way more blessed with the, what the Lord is offering than what I could find anywhere else. I have no good apart from you. Now, how do we get that perspective? Because later, a more mature St. Augustine would say this. Happiness is desiring nothing but the good and having all that one desires. See, he came to a Psalm 16 perspective. That's exactly what David is saying here. He's saying, I'm getting everything that I want, but what I want is you. That's the difference. And how do we get there? Verse 8, I think, is very instructive. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Happiness, desire, we know is a muscle. It's something that we work. It's something that we exercise. And what David says here is that I have continually set the Lord before me. I have found his way better and better. And then I keep bringing him before me. And what, you, what do you do if what you want is something that God says no to? Or he says this is unwise. Or he says, not now. And he does say those things about things that we want. But then we keep coming before him in honesty and in prayer and setting him before us, exercising the muscle of our desire and growing towards this perspective of having nothing good except what God gives. It's not something that we achieve overnight. But more and more, this is our prayer. It's not as though he's put all these toys around us and he wants us to avoid playing with them because of whatever reason, because he's maniacal or withholding or he wants other people to use them. He's saying, I want you to see that every good thing comes from me. 
and every good desire, every sin, we might say it this way, is a, it's a taking something that is good and twisting it. And so when we see that he is the giver of every good gift and we continually set him before us, our desires begin to change and we're not missing out anymore. We don't feel like we're missing out because we feel like we have something better. Second joy killer is the fear of loneliness. You can picture the movie scene before you. The rich or the powerful person is standing and looking over their great inheritance. And they say, what is the point of having all of this, right, if I have no one to share it? That's true. That's a true feeling. Because experiencing something together is part of the joy that we want. And part of that is experiencing God together. Look at verse 3. Picture, two different pictures in contrast. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name from my lips. Seeing the saints that are in the land versus the ones who run after other gods, everybody's going somewhere together, but there's ones that are going after God and there's ones that are not. And it's interesting that he says, in these saints is all my delight. Even though in just a minute he's going to say, there's full, the fullness of joy is in your presence, O oh God. So how can he have fullness of presence in God and then have all of his delight in the saints who are in the land? The answer is because the two things are not mutually exclusive, right? Part of our joy is in being together. You cannot separate those two things in First John 4. That's why he says you can't say, I love God, but I hate my brother. If you say that, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. You can't have those two perspectives. If you love God, then you love his people. But it's interesting that to be in the presence of God always in Scripture is to be in the presence of others. Think about any, any picture of the throne room of God from Isaiah, from the book of Revelation. Anytime the throne room of God is pictured, it's not a picture of us walking in and there being silence all around and us like falling before the Lord and, and giving an account for our life and then he kind of privately judges us. The throne room of God is filled with the, the, the angels singing holy, holy, holy from Isaiah. It is filled with the saints who have died in Christ. It is always a great cloud of witnesses. And so, to experience joy is to experience what we're experiencing this morning. Being together, joining a gospel community or a midweek gathering, to be together is going to be part of the joy. What joy is there in discovering something and then having no one to share with it? See, God always addresses that we are never alone in our joy. Even though we can have private experiences of joy, to be able to have the people of God, not just now, but in the future, to always have with us is part of the joy. And even though you may feel alone, as many of us struggle with, we are not alone, the scripture tells us. And we will never be left alone. The presence of God addresses the fear of missing out. It addresses the fear of loneliness. 
And the third and final thing is that it addresses the fear of joy not lasting. Isn't this the biggest joy killer? Isn't this the fly in the ointment? Even when you are happy, the feeling that this is not going to last. Some people talk about this in scripture as the happiness versus joy kind of discussion. Is happiness something that we experience outside of God or is temporary and joy something that's lasting? The truth is, I don't, I don't really want to wade into that debate because I think it's largely a word game. The, the scriptures talk about us being happy, like Psalm 1, happy is the man or blessed is the man, so happy, blessed, joyful. There's kind of a range of meaning to all these words and sometimes it's temporary in all their cases. And sometimes it's permanent. The point of that is not to get to the bottom of what is happiness and what is joy, I don't think, from the scriptures. I think that what is important to point out is that we know that there is some happiness that is fleeting and some that's lasting. And yet, nothing that we experience seems to last forever. We know this to be the truth. The second half of the vacation is depressing because we have to come back. The graduation for the kids is depressing in a sense, even though it's mixed with happiness because they're leaving. There's a sense that there's joy always mixed with sorrow. How does David address this in this psalm? Remember that he starts out by saying, preserve me, O God. That's his main prayer. Preserve me in yourself. Keep me in this place. Preserve me. That's his prayer. And then by the end, he has such confidence. Look at verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. He moves to this place of confidence and security. I know that you're not going to let me go. I know that this joy is going to continue. That's why the presence of God is the fullness of joy because it never ceases. But what he shows here, even in verse 10, is that he's highlighting the greatest and most ultimate fear in this whole joy-seeking endeavor. For you will not abandon my soul to shield or let your Holy One see corruption. What is he talking about there? He's talking about death. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the grave, the place of the dead. Or let your Holy One see corruption. He's highlighting here at the end what is our greatest fear when it comes to a lack of joy. It's not missing out. It's not loneliness, as great as those fears can be. It's this fact that at the end, there is this great, big, question mark, dropping off point where we know that whatever we've experienced that has brought us joy will in some way come to an end. Death highlights the utter temporariness of our joy. You don't have to be a believer in Jesus Christ to wrestle with that, to know that. You can be an artist, you can be a novelist, 
you can be a musician. There seems to be this theme of how do we deal with the fact that this is coming. Because we know that no matter what successes we experience, no matter what joys we may find in another person, a spouse, having a family, whatever joys we have, there is this unavoidable point in the future where we wonder if we will have it at all. How can there be the fullness of joy when there is death? And the answer that the scripture gives is that there cannot be. And that is why God has overcome death. His answer is not that death isn't painful or the ender of some joy. It's that he resurrects from the dead. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. What is David talking about? How will God not abandon him in Sheol in the grave? How will he not abandon him? He's already dead. What can God do? The only thing that God does there is to resurrect. Is David talking about the resurrection from the dead and that hope? You may think that's a stretch, but that's exactly what the Bible says he is talking about. In Acts chapter 2, Psalm 16 is quoted. Peter is preaching his first sermon at Pentecost. Thousands of people are about to give their lives to following Jesus. And he quotes Psalm 16. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. He experienced death. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing God, that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. Who is that descendant? It is Jesus Christ. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. And then he quotes Psalm 16. That he was not abandoned to Hades, the Greek translation for Sheol. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus Christ, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter is saying, David saw, even though he experienced death, did not see the end of his joy. Because as a prophet, he spoke about the resurrection that God would not leave him in the grave. And without that hope of the resurrection, there is no possibility of future joy. Because it all ends at a certain point in the future. And that will never be long enough for any one of us to satisfy that deep desire that we have, that we know that we, when we don't have it, which is that desire for joy. And so David is right that in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. And that will not be fully experienced until the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting, when there will be no break from the presence of God in our existence. It is future, but it is also now. This cannot be fully true until we are with the Lord 24-7. However, it is experienced now. I love the poem from George Herbert. You have a copy of it in your insert in the bulletin. Where he takes Colossians 3, 3. And he writes this poem around it with every other word you can see there. Spelling out. My life is hid in him that is my treasure. The poem is about the double motion 
that this man is living his life under the sun, that he is trying to work towards things and trying to create things, and he has this earthly existence, and yet at the same time, I have this other motion. My life is going towards the Lord, and he finds, and he hides in there, Colossians 3, which I love. It's just a picture of how this is wrapped in his life, that hidden within my life is this seeking of the treasure of the presence of God. His life is found in Christ. And even though he's moving through the world and doing things, and those things are important, there are things that God put us here to do. Nobody's saying that they aren't important. They are redemptive things. But in the midst of that, he is weaving a life of the presence of God and finding his treasure in We can have a hidden life with God that brings us great joy. And so, in conclusion, the presence of God gives us every good thing shared with others and with no end. That is why, in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. There is no other thing that gives us all of those pieces. Other people will leave us and forsake us. Other things that started out to be good will turn out not to be so good. And the things that are good will turn out to not last. But with God, we have every good thing, shared forever and with no end. That is obviously not true until there is a new heavens and a new earth. How do we experience it now? Well, to close out the series of where we started, Paul and Acts told us that God commands everyone everywhere to repent, which just means to turn and face the God who is present to us. And I love the three pictures of God that we have in this psalm. Look at the way that David talks about this. He says in verse 2, you are my Lord. In verse 7, he talks of God as a counselor, the Lord who gives me counsel. And then at the end, it's the Lord who is his guide. You make known to me the path of life. God is our Lord first, our counselor, and our guide. That is how we experience his nearness. He cannot be your counselor or your guide without being your Lord. That is where David starts. He says, oh Lord, you are my Lord, I'm going to live this life under your direction. I'm going to live under you. And that's where he begins. That's his first turning. And it's the first turning for any one of us. If you want to live in the fullness of joy, the first is to say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I'm going to pursue you and you alone. And then as the Christian life moves on, I see here not just Descriptions of God, but a movement of life. Because God, this Lord, becomes our counselor. He becomes our friend. He becomes the one that we turn to. And increasingly, we find our joy is not just given by him, but shared with him. The counselor, but also the guide. Eventually, we've come to see that the path of life is God's path. It's not just a path. 
And it's not just one that might have some good benefits to it, but it's actually what it's designed to be in the first place. You make known to me the path of life. So the Lord becomes our Lord, then he becomes our counselor, then our guide. A progression of intimacy that ends with us understanding this joy fully and finally with life in the new heavens and the new earth. John Calvin says, he who has God as his portion is destitute of nothing which is requisite to constitute a happy life. That's a very positive quote for someone who thinks his thought of as very cold and distant theologian. The one who has God as his portion, Lord, counselor, and guide. You're destitute of nothing. You have everything that you need for a happy life. Not just now. Let's pray.